Welcome to The Podlight, the audio collaboration between Silicon Valley Synergy and San Jose Spotlight. I'm your host, Bob Stedler. We have a great show today. We'll be talking about Opportunity Zones. With me is Eric Hayden, founder and managing partner with Urban Catalyst. Welcome. Good morning. Well, pleasure to have you here on the Podlight. Love to get a quick introduction of Urban Catalyst. So, uh, really appreciate being here. Urban Catalyst, we are a real estate equity fund that is focused on ground up development projects in downtown San Jose. We're also an opportunity zone fund. And what that means is we're able to give our investors the benefits of the opportunity zone legislation. And those are primarily tax benefits. Yeah, opportunity zones. Let's uh, dive deep in that. It's it's what everyone's talking about in development, and everyone's looking for that you know diamond in the rough. So let's talk about opportunity zones. Sure. You know, opportunity zones were created in 2017 as a part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and what happened was the federal government designated certain census tracts. They said these census tracts will qualify, and they're primarily lower income census tracts. But the federal government wanted the state to select which census tracts would be their opportunity zones. Each state got to select 25% of the eligible tracts. In April of 2018, the state of California selected their census tracts, and uh, we were very pleased to find that all of downtown San Jose, or at least most of it, was included in four census tracts as opportunity zones. Yeah, I mean, you know, my former job at the redevelopment agency, when the state didn't backfill with any other money or fund or any other thing, I think the opportunity zones are probably going to save the day. So what do you see as the, you know, the unique opportunities for San Jose opportunity zones? San Jose for the last 50, 60 years has really been in need of redevelopment. And having opportunity zones to provide an extra spark to the fire is definitely a positive. Now, the solid fundamental real estate market in San Jose is very strong. And so having opportunity zones there to help, you know, just push it over the edge is really what's needed. Yeah, I think the the basic fundamentals of real estate will always be there. And I think the key thing is... We've always, you know, and every cycle is you've seen those bad deals resurface and somebody rebrands it as a new good deal and it's a bad deal. And it's amazing the amount of work that it takes to really do due diligence on these projects and sites downtown. And, you know, with your background in downtown and your partners, what do you see as your fundamental difference from other people with your background in San Jose? So, you know, when we formed Urban Catalyst, we were going to be forming a real estate equity fund focused on ground up development. And it was really at that same time, your former business with the Office of Economic Development, they were very good about lobbying the state government to get downtown designated. Josh, my partner, Josh Burroughs, he also helped craft some of those letters to the state in order to lobby them to do this. And when we formed this company, it was, wow, we're going to be an opportunity zone fund. But at the same time, uh, back then, there were only 10 multi-asset opportunity funds operating in the country. So it was still a very new program. So it was a little bit... You know, there's a little bit intimidating looking at creating something that nobody really knew what it was. But we thought that the tax benefits would outweigh the negatives and we pushed on ahead. We like to think that our advantage in San Jose is that we've been doing business here for the last 15 plus years, really my entire career. Um, 
having Josh Burroughs, who was formerly with Barry Swenson, and having Paul Ring, who was with the core companies on my team, really makes us some of the most experienced developers in the downtown area. And we know all of the downtown property owners. Land acquisition isn't something that you can do overnight. Like you said, it takes a significant amount of due diligence. Old deals resurface. Do they become good deals? Could you redesign them to be good deals? What's the right land value for it? Because if you could bring the land value to zero, you know, maybe the bad deal turns into a good deal. I think the the basis is always the thing that the I think the public doesn't really understand on what makes these things work is you know everybody wants the biggest basis in the world but if it doesn't work for everybody then it's a very nice empty piece of land for a very very long time. Yeah, I, I totally look at it that way and, and for example, if you want to talk about fees, you hear a lot of developers complain about fees. I don't complain about fees. In order to get a project financed, my project has to make a certain margin and I have to solve for the land value. So just knowing in advance what the fees are, I know if I can pay the price for the land to make the project work. Now, just like you were saying though, that can change the basis of the land to a value below what the existing use is. If there's, you know, say an old rundown hotel there, but it still makes more money and has a higher land value as a hotel, I can't buy it and redevelop it into something else. So when cities put high fees in place, all it makes is that there's less development that's going to occur because that bottom level of properties, uh, you can't get the highest and best use from an acquisition standpoint. Yeah, I think a lot of people see those C office buildings, B office buildings, and they're like, why doesn't somebody tear that down? And you explain, well, it's still probably got a, what, 4% leverage on it, and it's still bringing in enough money and the family who owns it's comfortable. I mean, you look at the Zorba the Greek site, until the kids took it over, it was, you know, still cash flowing to the benefit of the family, and and that's sometimes what it takes. You know, uh, an example of that I've never successfully redeveloped a fast food restaurant because they make so much money that the land value is significantly higher than I can pay for almost any type of project that I would build. And it's it's funny how that happens, and and I think you know with downtown San Jose, with Jay Paul, and with Google West happening. So what is what's your outlook for downtown San Jose? I'm so glad you asked. I'm very uh, bullish on downtown San Jose. And really, the main reason for that is what I see as the large tech tenants and their constant migration southward. Groups like Google and Facebook and Apple, a lot of people don't realize really how big they have become in the last 10 years, You know, significantly bigger than they were. They were a household name. And when I say big, I mean number of employees and square footage of office. Google's up to almost 21 million square feet of office. Facebook in the last five years has gone from 2 million to 6 million. I mean, these are huge companies. Um, you know, I always think of Palo Alto as maybe the center of the tech universe, the center of Silicon Valley. And as companies start there and then start to expand, they really want to have this decentralized headquarters strategy. And really what that means is it used to be if you lived in San Jose where lots of people live, a very bedroom community, you could get to Palo Alto in half an hour. You know, it's a 15 mile drive. But now with the current traffic patterns, it could take an hour or an hour and a half and rush hour to get there. It used to be so cool that people had, Google had buses with Wi-Fi. how amazing. Now people wanna ride their mountain bikes to work. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. And Palo Alto is the, is the I almost think it's like the theological center of Silicon Valley. And 
I was looking at a project in Palo Alto where it was seven bucks a foot rent mm-hmm. on a really small piece of property. And then I was looking at a property in downtown San Jose and what it's class A rent was. And it's still, you know, it's catching up, but I think the market fundamentals will get there to the point where I think it's what 450 triple net is kind of, I think the dividing number for office with current construction costs. And so I think, you know, downtown is really kind of on the right path. And I think the key thing is, is we just kind of need the government to kind of just not pick winners and losers and just let the market decide the mix. The way that I look at it is a lot of the past expansions in downtown San Jose have been initiated really by the the public entities, the redevelopment agency in particular. And this current expansion is driven by the private sector. I look at the city of Mountain View, 95% of the office space is leased or owned by Google. In the city of Cupertino, 85% of the office space is leased or owned by Apple. And Apple and Google combined have over 50% of the office space in Sunnyvale. I mean, if you, it, Sunnyvale, every single project, every property off the 237 is now developed or under construction. Where's the next place they're gonna go? I mean, obviously they're trying to do some work in Santa Clara, but Santa Clara doesn't have as many you know, open properties as Sunnyvale had. Campbell's completely built out. You could go to North First Street in San Jose, but they have some traffic you know, restrictions based upon their current planning process that they can't get through their allocations. And that leads downtown San Jose. We saw this happening about two years ago, and it's why we wanted to form Urban Catalyst. We wanted to get it on the ground floor and acquire properties you know, while before the market really took off. And our business plan was matched up a lot with urban community, with Jay Paul, with Google. So we have other developers and large tech companies that that really saw the same thing. And here we all are. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about you, what your current projects are. Sure. So we have seven projects in downtown. We have a very diverse portfolio from a project type perspective. Um, Three of our projects are in the Deardon Station area. Out there we have a hotel, a multifamily project, and a senior living facility. The hotel is a Marriott Town Place Suites, an extended stay business hotel. We signed our agreement with Marriott about a month ago, so we're pretty excited about that one. Um, the senior living facility is very specific. It's assisted living memory care. They haven't built a project like that in downtown San Jose in almost 35 years. So very high demand for that use. You know, these projects are really bookended in between Adobe and Google. And this is one thing that really separates us from other opportunity zone funds because we are also developers and not just fund managers. And because we've been in the community for so long, people say opportunity zones and opportunity zone funds, they're just bringing money into these areas and they don't care about the community. It's all about returns to the investors. But for us, we see ourselves as a part of the community. And we think that we can find projects that not just benefit our investors so that we can get the funding to build them, but also benefit the community. Those three projects are all in the same block and they all are about the same size. How do we choose three different project types? And how do we choose those ones specifically? And the answer is, is because we talked with the local neighbors, we talked with the community leaders, we talked with the planning department. We went out there to find out what works and we were able to put two and two together for a win-win. In the downtown core, you know, on the other side of 87, our other four projects, we have two office projects, a high-rise multifamily project right across from City Hall, the old Chevron site, and then we have a high-rise student housing tower on 4th Street. We're currently working with San Jose State to form a partnership. They've expressed interest in doing a 25-year master lease with us. We're, we're seeing how that could work. Yeah, I think diversity of product types important. It's 
it's really interesting how the different asset classes, how they look at the world and what they look at the land price and the time to get it up and out. It's especially the hospitality stuff has been interesting, but I've been seeing more and more of the memory care mm-hmm. and just people looking for those sites and just people asking me to get them some sort of off-market deal. And it's like everybody else is looking for that same off-market deal. And it's it's really gets into execution. It's an interesting market that I've been learning about the last five, six years. So working with my partners, Josh and Paul, we've done six assisted living memory care facilities. We've done three other Marriott Town Place suites. Josh, when he was a Swenson, did a lot of work on the graduate student housing project, which is about a block away from our project. In San Jose, I've been a part of almost 1,500 multifamily units being delivered. So really strong on the multifamily side. And we've also done a lot of the smaller offices, what we're looking at doing in downtown. You know, our office, you get Jay Pauls of the world that come in, three and a half million square feet at City View Plaza. It's amazing. I love watching it happen. I look at the other developers downtown, not as competition, but really like a synergy. You know, I want to help them do what they're doing. And our office project is so much different because it's so much smaller. You know, we have one that's 75,000 square feet and one that's 65,000 square feet. And they're not the perfect 40,000 square foot floor plates that are going to attract these large tech tenants. It's more for the smaller tenants that have been downtown for 20 or 30 years that are looking to relocate, that are looking to move, but want to stay in the downtown area. We can provide a space for them to do that, to stop the type of displacement that could be happening. I think it's interesting because when you look at the people leaving Mountain View and Sunnyvale and they're looking for that kind of 50,000 square foot space or you want to go from 5,000 to 20 and you don't want to maybe take a full floor plate and pay that, there's just not a market for that at the moment. And, you know, when when River Park 2 went up because, you know, they had the steel and the structural code was changing and they had to throw that up, they begged for one tenant. And it screwed up the office market in downtown for about you know five plus years. Mm-hmm. I, I remember. And so it's just I think it's time for us to right size this stuff because the worst thing in the world is to build something three hundred thousand square feet and have it be vacant and have that horrible vacancy rate that you just look at and scream when downtown wasn't really that bad. And no. if you just took that off, we were in the eights. And so it's just perception I think is important, and I think that's what's exciting about Urban Catalyst is you're not going to do anything to hurt the greater downtown. And I think that's part of what's needed with these type of funds is that local experience. Yeah, we, we talk about that a lot. We, we call it developer first funds. It's We haven't got into a lot of the nitty gritty stuff that Opportunity Zone funds, all the rules that we have to meet. But a couple of the major rules, the first is we have to spend all of our money within 31 months of receiving it into our fund. And the second is within 30 months of acquiring a property, we have to quote unquote substantially improve the property. Substantial improvement means putting money into a project on a one-to-one basis equal to the value of the structures that are currently built on the land, not including the value of the land itself. But if you think of other Opportunity Zone funds across the country, you know their big plan is to raise you know a billion dollars and then go look around the country to find developers to partner with who have projects in Opportunity Zones. And they're going to be relying on those developers to meet these really pretty compact timelines. 
at Urban Catalyst, because we're the developers too, we know we can meet these timelines. So it's a lot more security for our investors. The the details of it all is just, it just has to mesh like gears that, you know, run smoothly because otherwise it just... I think the lawsuits will start coming and and nobody wants to see that. Uh, I'll tell you some more about Opportunity Zone Funds that is uh, kind of a a unique perspective maybe because I formed Urban Catalyst before the IRS and Treasury came out with their first round of clarifications and guidelines. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, we formed in September of 2018. The first round came out in October. Mm -hmm. The second round came out in April of 2019. And the third and final round came out in December. 2019 so just at the end of the year yeah after the first round we were about 50% clear on the rules so when you have that lack of clarity investors you know they saw confusion and in their minds confusion equals risk and so you didn't see opportunity zones raising a lot of money and we were somewhat included in that after April we're 50% we're 80% of the way there 80 to 85% And that was enough for investors to feel comfortable investing. And we really started to ramp up our fundraising. Now with the December guidelines, we're 100% of the way there. Things are crystal clear. And we really got everything that we needed in order to make it a viable program. Just want to make sure all the investors out there realize that crystal clear now. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I've been following along the way. And so now that we're crystal clear in, you know, December 2019, um, <laughs> yeah, two years into the program. two years in the program, just, you know, shoot first name later. Um, but we're there. That's all that matters is you're there. So what's Urban Catalyst forecast for 2020 and beyond now that you've got that 31 month window? Well, you know, it's it's always interesting to predict the future. I know from my industry, we always say, you know, it's very cyclical. Seven years is the average in between the peaks and troughs. And we've been at this now for 10 years. In 2014 and 2015, I had some projects that I was looking for financing and I went out to third-party equity groups to find financing and they all said, oh, well, we're at the end of this cycle and we're harvesting our gains now and we're building up a stockpile of cash that we can take advantage of the market when it goes down. And I think everybody's been thinking that exact same thought for the last five, six, seven years. And here we still are. I I don't know if it's... A lot of the groups, Wall Street investors, equity funds, hedge funds, they're looking so hard in their rearview mirror at 2008 and how they're going to avoid it and how they're going to take advantage of the next one. I mean, my my dad used to say everyone's a prisoner of their past experiences. And I think the 08 downturn hit so hard that I think people still kind of have scabs and bruises from that mentally, so to speak. I've been approached the last you know three, four years of... So if we had this kind of money, what would you do with it? And just kind of, you know, it's not the way I would start a partnership conversation, but it is something where people are just, they have stockpiles of cash and they don't know what to do with it, but they're just not sure. And then when you, you further the conversation and then it just kind of stalls. Mm-hmm. I think we're in uncharted territory and my outlook for 2020 is market fundamentals will always be market fundamentals. And as long as you're following that, then you shouldn't have a precipitous fall. I, I look at it the same way. I mean, obviously we look at our downside and we mitigate our downside to the point where if there is a recession in the next couple of years, we're going to be able to you know handle it. We're going to be able to live. We're still going to be able to return positive 
returns to our investors and especially because we have a 10-year timeline because of course the biggest benefit of the opportunity zone legislation is after you hold your money in an opportunity zone fund for 10 years all the profits that you receive are tax-free right so the longer timeline helps us we we look at it in the timeline of our fund is there are three potential times when a recession would hurt us the first would be if a recession happens towards the end of 2020 or early 2021, when we're planning on breaking ground on all seven of our projects, that might make it so that it's harder for us to find senior debt and we wouldn't maybe be able to get as good of terms or as high a value and we would need more equity. So that would be one time. In a worst case scenario, we wait a couple years and we start. The substantial improvement test that we have, uh, because substantial improvement includes the cost of construction documents, fees, and entitlements, mm -hmm. uh, in every case in our fund, we meet substantial improvement prior to starting construction. Wow, that's huge because a lot of other parts of the country you can't do that. No, San Jose is a very unique place because the land values are so high. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see, but I think... If, if we can just keep the construction costs, you know, I think if they come back down earth a little bit, I think you'll see, you know, that kind of be mitigated a bit. So I'm, I'm bullish as well. The next time I think that recession could hurt us is when we go to refinance our projects after they're constructed and stabilized. You know, our plan is to return 75% of our investors' initial investment back to them in the first five years through refinancing our properties and then distributing excess refinance proceeds on top of us paying back their senior debt loans to our investors. If we can't get as much money out at that time because there's a recession and say rents aren't as high or cap rates are different, we would uh, not be able to return as much cash. We could always refinance again at a later time. And then of course, the last time it might affect us, we plan to sell all of our projects after 10 years. And you know, if we sell on 10 years in one day and there's a massive recession occurring, probably not the best time to sell your properties to return money to your investors. So we could hang on a couple years. Yeah, I think the good news is the recession kind of dangles a bit. And I think the you see the recession coming, knock on wood, you see it happen in the outlying areas. But when you're in the core bay, I think there's a bit more parachute room because you kind of see it coming, you see things going. And I don't think the fundamentals change for all of the Bay Area. Like last time you saw it go from the outer areas in. And then once you got, I think there's like a six to 12 month period because at redevelopment, we our tax increment drops pretty substantially when you see that happen. And we drop two years after because that's the property taxes start getting dropped in the assessor. So it's just so you, I think there's more of a, a runway. So that's what really kind of gives me more um, less pause on this type of investment because I think you've got more of a runway to kind of see it coming and plan ahead. When we look at grounded development, we look at four types of risk. We look at entitlement risk, land development risk, construction risk, and market risk. And what we're talking about is market risk. And one of the ways that we mitigate market risk is being here in San Jose, being in Silicon Valley where there is such a strong job market. I mean, the Silicon Valley job engine just creates so much demand for all different project types that this is where we wanted to be to really mitigate that risk. I, I just remind people from around the country that, you know, there's a reason why it's Silicon Valley is doing so well and it's not just the weather, so. <laughs> we actually pay extra taxes just for the weather. We do. That's that's where the uh, that's where the extra taxes go. Yep. <laughs> so this has been the Podlight, a collaboration between Silicon Valley Synergy and San Jose Spotlight. I'm Bob Stedler. Thank you to Eric Hayden for joining me today. Remember to join us for our next Podlight episode. Mm -hmm.